What must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, in 2005, the American sociologist Christian Smith, with his colleague Melinda Linquist Denton, carried out research amongst church youth in the United States to find out what they really believed. They summarized the, re summarized the results of their survey of 3,000 youth in the paper entitled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. This is what they found. A majority of the church youth believe that a God exists who, or who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So far, so good. They also believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and, the mo and most other world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. God does not want to be particularly involved in one's life. God, sorry, God does not need to be inv particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. And they summarized uh, those findings under the expression that they called moralistic therapeutic de deism. It's moralistic because it's about having a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being good, a good moral person. The authors described the system as therapeutic because it's about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents, as opposed to being like, and I'm quoting them here, repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign divine being, of steadfastly saying one's prayers, of faithfully observing high holy days, of building character through suffering. They call it deism because it declares a belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affairs, especially in affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. The use of the word deism can be confusing here because it can be mixed up with the 18th century deism, which was the belief that God existed God created the world, set the motions of physics and biology in place, but then had no particular further involvement in it. The deism here is revised from its classical 18th century version by the therapeutic qualifier, making the distant God selectively available for taking care of needs. So it views God something like, and I'm quoting them again, like a combination of a divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, 
and does not become too personally involved in the process. So to sum summarize um, this in simple words, moralistic theory, therapeutic deism is the belief that good people go to heaven. That to be good and happy, there is a set of moral boxes to tick. God is there, but only when you need him. And the main goal of life is to be happy. And God is there to make us happy. So you might be asking yourselves, why am I going on about this stuff? Well, for three reasons. Firstly, I believe that moralistic the therapeutic deism is very prevalent in today's churches. I think it's best exemplified in the way that many Christians will see certain politicians as being their country's savior simply because they tick a certain number of moral boxes, even although they not only sin, but they go around boasting about it. Or at the other end of the political spectrum, thinking that one can be good by simply doing the right thing, whether it be environmental or social consciousness, without a trust that God can actually act in today's world. But the second reason, and I suspect I'm not alone in this, I think we can easily drift into thinking like that. I'm okay because I'm ticking the right moral boxes. Being judgmental of others while keeping God at a distance until we hit a crisis. But the third and most important reason is I believe that this passage, the passage we're looking at today, we can see Jesus respond to, a, to, the, to, respond to and challenge this way of looking at the gospel of salvation. So if you'd like to open your Bibles, if you've got them, to Mark chapter 10, to the passage we heard read earlier. And we'll be reading from verse 17 onwards. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, to, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So here in this story, we have a young man that comes to Jesus 
We know very little who he is. Uh, the ESV title uh, here says the rich young man. But the term uh, young actually doesn't, we don't see anything saying he's young in this passage. That comes from Matthew's version of this passage. And Luke refers to him as a ruler. Other than these differences, the three passages in Matthew, Luke, and Mark are virtually identical. So this young man approaches Jesus. And from the outset, we observe that his attitude is very different to that of the Pharisees in the beginning of chapter 10, who come to Jesus trying to catch him up by asking him questions about marriage. This man comes, he kneels before him and says, good teacher. He really seems like a genuine seeker. His, his question seems really sincere. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' first answer is, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So from the outset, Jesus points out two fundamental realities. Firstly, no human being is good. And secondly, only God is good. It seems to me at least that he's trying to do, like is highlighted throughout the Gospel of Mark, is to get the hearers to ask themselves, who is Jesus? And here he's giving them a very strong hint that he is God. So this is my first point. Jesus is God. Then Jesus goes on to answer the actual question of the man. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Does anything strike you here? Can you see anything missing? Yeah, what's missing? Yes. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Kind of important one, isn't it? But we'll come back to that later. The young man answers him saying, he has kept those commandments that Jesus cited from childhood. And then we have something that really struck me when I was preparing this. Mark says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's not just a casual look. Um, a better translation of the Greek might be, Jesus gazed at him and loved him. Jesus gazes at him and loves him and then says, you lack one thing. Can you see the irony? The young man who has everything, he lacks one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus sees the genuineness of this man's quest. He sees he's not just, it's not just an academic question. The young man really wants to know what he must do. 
And Jesus can only love him for that. But Jesus can also see straight into the man's heart and is able to pinpoint the one thing that is a barrier for the rich man to follow him, his possessions. But notice that the man's idolatry is not a reason for Jesus not to love him. Jesus gazes at him and loves him. I don't know where you're at with God. Some of you might think, I have it all together. I've obeyed him all my life. For others, you might have unimaginable guilt, shame that you're carrying. And you might think, God couldn't possibly even look at me. Well, I think what this passage teaches us is that whatever our baggage, wherever we're at, whatever mess, if it's big or small, if we turn to him and genuinely seek him, he will gaze into our hearts and love us. Jesus looks into our hearts and loves us, is my second point. So not only does the rich man, young man, have everything, but he has also ticked all the moral boxes, or at least he thinks he has. But Jesus points to the one thing that he's lacking. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. The man leaves depressed because he has lots of stuff. And notice the, progre the progression that follows uh, in the following text. In verse 23, Jesus says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be. And then he says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then finally he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So a lot of uh, Bible interpreters over the years have sought to explain this verse in different ways. And one very popular explanation is uh, in the, arose in the 19th century, but you can still hear from time to time, is the idea that there was a doorway in Jerusalem called the um, eye of a needle and uh, inside one of the gates um, so the idea so the interpretation of the passage was that if a camel was going to make it through this door it could only get through the doorway if it got rid of all the extra luggage to get through the door so in other words if we only get rid of all the extra baggage in our lives, we would be able to get through the door and enter the kingdom of heaven. However, I don't think this interpretation really holds up to scrutiny. For a start, there's no historical evidence of that door existing. But also, this expression was also used in other parts at the same time in contemporary time of Jesus. Often it was used as an elephant going through a door. So Jesus simply uses the camel, which is the biggest mammal in Judea, to 
make the point that it is impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's the most, the most obvious explanation is probably the correct one. It is impossible to get a camel through the eye of the needle. So notice this progression. It is difficult for the rich to be saved. It's difficult to be saved. It is impossible for a rich person to be saved. Now, by Swiss standards, I'm considered poor. I have a card to prove it. It's the card to allow me into the Caritas supermarkets for poor people, for my fellow poor people. Now, I'm not really that poor. Um, you get them quite easily, but um, I'm considered poor. I can deduct off my tax for, uh, what is it called, the revenu uh, modeste, as they call it. But I know that I'm not really that poor. There's people a lot poorer than me in Switzerland. And even the poorest person in Switzerland is probably wealthier than many, most people around the world. These are some statistics I've pulled up. If you have food in your fridge, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank, your wallet, and some spare change, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. So let's face it, we're all rich. And even the disciples, who had left everything to follow Jesus, understand Jesus' sayings in that way. For they say, then who can be saved? They understand that he's setting the bar so high that nobody can be saved. So they ask, but who can? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The, the rich young man came to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is answering the question by saying, in words to the effect of, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. With man, it is impossible. You see, the gospel isn't about ticking off some moral boxes in order to gain eternal life. It is coming to the realization that it is impossible for us to be saved by our own strength. So point three, the gospel isn't a set of moral tick boxes. The gospel isn't about ticking off some moral tick boxes. It's coming to the realization that it is impossible for us to be saved by our own strength and that we need a savior. For all things are possible with God. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew quotes Jesus um, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, saying, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knock, knocks, it will be opened. If we genuinely recognize that it is not in our own strength that we can be saved 
and we seek him, the door will be opened. But that requires letting go of what is hindering us. The gospel isn't a set of moral tick boxes. The young man comes to Jesus asking him what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus points out in his teaching that he isn't looking for the correct moral boxes to to be ticked. He wants far more than that. He wants our hearts. So we come back to the fact that Jesus no doubt purposely left out the first commandment out of the list that he gave to the man. Because he knew that ultimately the very one, that was the very one he wasn't able to follow. He did, not, he did have other God, another God before God, the God of money. What is it in your life that would truly stop you from following Jesus. And my final point is counting the cost. It's worth it. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house our brothers, our sisters, our mother, our father, our children, our lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I'm always nervous uh, in the Gospels when, I, when Peter opens his mouth to brag about something. Um, but in this instance, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He commands those who have left their houses and their families. Notice he doesn't say wife or husband, just if you're getting any ideas, um, for the sake of the Gospel. He's saying it's worth it. We will inherit far more than we've given up in this life and the life to come. But this will probably involve persecutions also. One thing that I've come to appreciate of late is the extent to which Christian community is basically like our big family. Our non-Christian friends can be stunned and somewhat envious at the number of deep relationships we have. And that's certainly one of the things that we inherit when we follow Jesus. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus reminds us of the upside-down nature of the gospel. A few years ago, uh, now actually when I think about it, it's quite a few years ago. It was when I was still single and unmarried, but already working in ministry. I was assistant pastor at Crossroads, and one Friday I went up to the mountains, and um, I was driving up the hill, and I got stuck on a really narrow, steep road in the snow. 
And suddenly, this guy pulls up behind me in this beautiful, big 4x4 Porsche Cayenne. And the guy got out and asked me if I wanted any help. And I said, yeah, sure. And then his wife got out, and he had this gorgeous wife that looked like a model. Um, these gorgeous kids, and they walked over to this amazing chalet across the road, and she took them home to the chalet as he helped me out of the snow. Um, and uh, he pulled me out. Um, so this guy, I mean, he really had everything. He had the flash car, the lovely wife, the kids, the beautiful chalet. Um, and you know the worst bit about it? He was also really nice. <laughs> So the contrast to my situation couldn't have been greater. And I got home that night and muttered, I should have stayed in banking. <laughs> I mean, I was on fast track to be a partner, and these guys, they make 17 million a year. But rest assured, I don't regret my decision. <laughs> I've been around long enough to see that there are often cracks that don't appear in the Instagram uh, images that we see. And what a privilege to be involved in a field of work where you see life transformed by the gospel and changed forever. And also, I wouldn't have met my lovely wife, so that's a good enough reason in itself. <laughs> well, the guy in this story, he came to Jesus. He was rich. He was young. We're told by Luke he was a ruler. He was a leader. The text doesn't say this, but he was probably good-looking too. In this world, he would have been at the top of society. He would be the one with the slick Instagram posts that portrays the perfect life. But Jesus reminds us that the values of the kingdom are totally different. Whoever is first in this world will be last in eternal life. The rich young man came to Jesus seeking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, but found it too hard to let go of the things of this life. How easy it is to be like that. And this is where I'm pulling out, this is an old illustration, but uh, some of you might have seen it before. Um, so this rope... Imagine this rope represents your life, eternal life, right? Now, this is your little bit of life here on Earth. So you imagine this rope goes for infinity, and this is your little bit of life on Earth. I took this from Francis Chan, so for those of you that have already seen it, apologies. Um, but don't we do that? We start life. We really worry about what we're going to do when we're grow going to grow up. And then we grow up, we get a job, and we work, 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 so that we can buy a house, you know, start a family, buy a car, all the rest. And then, you know, we go on with life, and then suddenly we realize, ooh, ooh, I'm getting a bit old, I better start saving up, saving up, saving up for my pension so that I can just enjoy this last little bit here. And we've got all the rope. I mean, I think it's a great illustration, to, because we all, we all fall for that. We all fall for that, let's face it. We, f we lose sight of eternity. So Jesus is saying here, 
You're only thinking about the red bit. But there's greater reward thinking on the eternal. So just to conclude, I'd like to come back to the moralist therapeutic deism. What can we learn from this? Good people don't go to heaven. By worldly terms, the rich young man, he was a good guy. But he walked away. Jesus teaches that nobody is good but God. The gospel isn't about ticking a set of moral boxes. God wants our hearts above all. God is there, but not only when we need him. He gazes into our hearts and loves us. He knows us intimately. All areas of our lives are of concern to him. Not just the ones we feel comfortable about showing him. The main goal of life is not our personal happiness. Jesus came to reconcile us to God so that we can, can live in restored relationship with him and with each other. Sharing this great news and living in the light of this truth might cause us to suffer. However hard we might, it might feel at this time, the, the reward in eternity is far greater. Thank you.